0: It was on October 31st, 1517, that an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Most of us know that God used that singular event to launch the much-needed Protestant Reformation. I say much-needed because the church had gotten significantly off track. There's too much to recite this morning as to the wrong-headed teaching of the church, but suffice it to say that Luther and the other reformers recovered the biblical teaching of the gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what you may not know, in fact, it seems only social historians know, is that Luther also reformed another institution of great importance to us. You see, if you enjoy a marriage of love and companionship today, if you are looking forward to falling in love and saying, I do, you owe that in large part to Martin Luther. You see, cultures around our world have always diminished and marginalized women and therefore the institution of marriage. Marriage was seen as a necessary part of life, For sexual gratification and procreation. Even the Church of Jesus Christ has struggled to recognize the value, honor, and dignity of womanhood and therefore marriage. For example, throughout the Middle Ages, women were seen as little more than a necessary evil. Albert the Great, who was a teacher of the great Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas, wrote things like this. Women cannot be trusted. A woman is a botched male. They possess a defective nature. They are known for their diabolical deception. And men should be on guard against any woman as against a poisonous snake. Clearly, the medieval view of women was awful. They were seen as the cause of the fall, fall, the cause of all of our problems, Eve, and all, all of that. Even from earlier days, the great theologian Augustine did not believe that women were created in the image of God in the same way that men were. This led to all kinds of abuses and negative and demeaning views of marriage. Jerome, an early scholar, created a scale, what he called a scale of spiritual value. To celibacy, he gave a value of 100%. To widows, I guess because you got rid of the guy, a value of 60%. To marriage, only a value of 30%. I'm not really sure what all that means, but surely he wasn't impressed with marriage. And so as a result, the church taught if you wanted to be truly spiritual, you should remain single. You should, rem- you should be celibate. And that teaching actually continues to this day. Priests and nuns uh, remain celibate because they are married to the church. But then along came Martin Luther. He began writing on the on the good of marriage where he said things like what a truly noble blessed condition is the state of marriage. He said rather shockingly that you can be married and still be spiritual. As early as 1522 he wrote a book entitled On Monastic Vows, in which he released all monks and nuns from their vows of celib- celibacy. As you can imagine, monasteries and nunneries throughout Germany emptied. Now, he himself had decided that he was not going to get married. He was only in his 30s at this time, but he was quite sure that he would be assassinated. No need to get married. But in 1525, he wrote, Suddenly, and when my mind was on other matters, the Lord snared me with the yoke of matrimony. This is how the story goes. Catherine von Bora had been dumped into a nunnery at an early age by her parents. You see, her family could only afford one dowry, and it would not be for her. In 1522, she read... Luther's work on monastic vows. She then gave it to 11 other nuns to read. The 12 of them then sent a note to Luther asking for help to escape. Leonard Kopp was the local fishmonger at the time whom Luther enlisted to help break out the nuns. One day he delivered 12 barrels of herring to the nunnery and left with 12 barrels of nuns. Not making that up. Three of them returned to their families. Nine had no place to go. Luther felt responsible, began playing matchmaker. He matched eight of the nine quite quickly, all but Catherine von Bora. He actually did find for her two matches The first would not marry her because his family saw her as an apostate nun. The second was an old medical doctor, and Catherine said, no way. Most understand today that Catherine had set her heart on Luther. She finally came out and said she would not marry anyone but him. What else could he do? He felt responsible, so he married her. Not because he loved her, but out of a sense of duty. In a letter to a friend, he said, I feel neither passionate love nor burning for her, but I do cherish her. That's sweet. But that all changed after they were married. He fell head over heels in love. He later wrote, I would not give up my Katie. That's what he called her. I would not give up my Katie for all of France. Neither would I. Because God gave her to me and me to her. I love my Katie. Yes, I love her more dearly than myself. (laughs) You see, Luther was an intellectual giant. He was a man that just, his mere presence demanded authority. And in Katie... He found his match. It is said that Luther placed their home at the center of their universe where it had never been before. In fact, he said this, in domestic affairs, I defer to Katie. Otherwise, I listen to the Holy Spirit. For for example, as brilliant as he was, he was terrible at his personal finances. And so Katie Actually, what happened, as I recall the story, he had been given by a bishop a couple of silver candlesticks, think Les Miserables, and he gave them away, and it infuriated Katie. So she took over the family budget. Secular historians have argued that because Luther was so public about his wife, so public about their good marriage, that for the first time in history, there was a major paradigm shift in marriage major before marriage was an economic social and sometimes political transaction now for the first time you married for love and thus or at least cherishing and thus began a shift in the way the church and men began to view women by the way Luther and Katie had six children, and by all accounts, he was a good dad. He wrote wonderful, tender, fatherly letters to each of his children. Why do I share that story with you? Because all too often, at the feet of the church are laid the charges of chauvinism, chauvinism and uh, misogyny, which is the hatred of women, and while... There certainly have been abuses perpetrated against women throughout time, some in the name of the church. We must not be ignorant of history. Jesus Christ, the scripture, and the true teachings of Christianity have always elevated women in contrast to the culture around them. We're in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we arrive today at at a text which, like others of his writings, have led many to accuse Paul of patriarchal chauvinism. But we must not be ignorant of history. We must not be ignorant of the truth. Not only that, in our attempts to submit to the authority of Scripture, we must allow it to say what it says and obey it. So, what was the cultural and social climate of Paul's day regarding this issue? It was most oppressive under Jewish law, and woman was Was merely a thing, a possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his herds or his material possessions. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived pretty much in seclusion. She lived in the woman's apartments. She didn't even join her husband for family meals. Others, uh, of her was demanded complete servitude and chastity even though her husband was not so bound in both greek and jewish laws and customs all of the privileges belong to the husband all of the duties belong to the wife it was into this culture that paul spoke and wrote at this time there were so called Household codes concerning the management of a home. Lists of duties primarily for wives, children, and slaves existed. And make no mistake about it, they were highly hierarchical and patriarchal. Men ruled the roost. The lists magnified the husband's power and authority and the servant duties of everybody else. In fact, one author said it this way. Behind the various Hellenistic codes, one finds the basic principle of power and submission. Subordinate members are to submit to the sovereign ruler of the household who is at the same time the husband, the father, and the master. And we say, amen, let's stand for closing prayer. The scripture has much to say. Um, excuse me it was into this culture that Paul wrote his household code and it was shockingly different he had the audacity to address not only the duties of the subordinates but the duties of husbands fathers and masters as well this was unheard of You see, true Christianity has always sought to elevate women beyond the cultural mores of the day. A faithful look at history will reveal that Christ and his followers have valued the dignity, honor, and place of women. Again, this is not to say that there have not been abuses. There have been. And for those, I am deeply sorry, but we must not be ignorant of history. The scripture has much to say about the place of women in God's economy, in the management of his household. It is true that women were created equally in the image of God. Genesis 127 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The clear implication of that verse is that God created Mankind or or humankind in his image, and he did that by creating them male and female, man and woman. Then, of course, many of us know Paul's famous words to the Galatians. For all of you, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He said basically the same thing in our study of Colossians chapter 3. without the statement on gender, as he talked about this new self being renewed in the image of Christ, it is a, quote, renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, the slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. Now, We found that in those passages, as it relates to salvation and God's sanctifying work, there is no distinction. God equally saves and sanctifies all. He is no respecter of persons, regardless of social, economic, racial, national, or gender classes. And as his followers, we must not maintain those distinctions either. And yet, and yet, as it relates to function in the church and in the home, there is another extreme we must avoid as followers of Christ. In his various household codes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul does set up a functional authority. Duties which demonstrate authority, submission, and obedience. Existing social relationships are not erased, but they are transformed. And in our attempts not to be chauvinistic or misogynistic... um, in our attempts to rightly elevate women and recognize their equal value, dignity, and honor, in our attempts to rightly hold marriage to the highest degree, we must not dismiss the clear teaching of Scripture. In fact, it is so clear that many who do not accept the teachings on this topic have sought to dismiss Paul as a, mere patriarchal product of his culture. If we do that, my question then is, what of his writings can we trust? That is all a very long introduction to our text today. Look at it with me, Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Some read this passage as they go through the flow of Colossians and suggest that Paul, Paul just, these just kind of come out of nowhere. They note that there are no conjunctions, that he or or perhaps a later editor just added these commands, this household code haphazardly into the text. I disagree. I think Paul's train of thought goes like this. Therefore, beginning of chapter 3, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Let your let your mind, uh, 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 set your minds on things above, not on things below. You have died with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, you need to put to death the sinful things of this earth, like sexual immorality. You need to put off like a dirty garment, sinful things like sins of the mouth. And if there is any place for sexual purity and a gracious mouth, it is in the home. You're being recreated. Uh renewed into an image, the image of Christ. And so put on the character of Christ, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and love. This will cause us to bear with one another and to forgive one another. Let the the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, teaching and admonishing one another, singing with thankfulness uh, to God. And whatever you do, Whatever it is that you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through Him. And this new character, this new image of Christ into which you are being renewed, ought to be seen in your homes as well. These household codes of the world, they are being Completely renewed and transformed. No longer, men, do you get to sit around like s- little sovereign potentates ordering your wives and children and slaves around. This character of Christ that you are putting on should transform your homes. This character of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and love and bearing with one another and forgiving one another should have a massive impact on our families. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. For His purposes, for His sake, for His glory. And so he goes on to give us four commands, actually, again, shockingly addressing each member of the household in the gathered assembly, that is, in the church. This was unheard of, addressing them each as equals in the presence of God. At this time, women and children were not seen as worthy of moral instruction. But they were and they are. But notice in this letter where we've already talked about no distinction, there are still functional roles to be fulfilled. Nothing to do with superiority or inferiority Before the Lord, we are all created equally in the image of God. We enjoy the same salvation and process of sanctification. But for the proper functioning of the home, for the proper functioning of the church, there are roles to be filled. Four roles with corresponding commands form our outline. We're going to cover, it's going to come as a shock. We're going to cover all four of them today. If you want more on the topic, I've taught on the family. I've done a family series two, two different times. I've also recently taught through Ephesians 5 and 6, where Paul elaborates on, the, uh, on these points, and they're available on podcast. So this morning, we're going to look at wives, husbands, children, and fathers very quickly. Now, like Ephesians, Paul is also going to talk about slaves and masters as well. I'll get into that. Next week, probably address it even more when we get to the book of Philemon. But I bring this to, atten- to your attention because there is some intentional symmetry in these verses that I want you to see. Paul talks about three pairings of people within the household first, wives and husbands, second, children and parents, or more specifically, fathers, and thirdly, slaves and masters. Please notice that he addresses each person every person and their duties. This is important. It's not as if he only addresses the one submitting in the pair. That's what the other household codes did. Each person has a divinely appointed responsibility. And in each pair, he addresses the one who is to submit first, followed by the one leading. It is also uh, important to note that The first one in each pair, wives, children, and slaves, submit or obey as is fitting in the Lord, as is pleasing to the Lord, and as for the Lord. In other words, this is all in this book of high Christology, this is all focused on the Lordship of Christ. The point being, he is supreme over and sufficient for everything in the church and even in family relationships. Don't miss this. In the household codes that existed outside the New Testament, the husband was Lord and Master. Paul is making it clear, there is a Lord to whom we all ultimately submit, and it is not you, husbands, fathers, and masters. It is the sovereign Lord of the universe. This is, is revolutionary. Make sure you understand that. Paul is saying, father, husband, master, there is a Lord in your home to whom you too must submit. Wives, children, servants, as you submit, recognize that it is the Lord whom you are serving. It's really pretty simple to understand these commands a little harder to obey S- starting with the address to wives consistent with ephesians and first peter the wife is to be subject to her husband as is fitting in the lord in ephesians paul said wives be subject to your own husbands as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife as christ is also the head of the church as the church is subject to christ so also wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. First Peter chapter 3, we read, In the same way, you wives. That is, in, in the same way, he's referring back to servants and masters. That's what it is. You wives be submissive to your own husbands. Now, what does it mean to submit to or to be subject to? The word is hupotasso, which means to be subject to, to subordinate, or to come under the authority of another. It was a military term. It was used of a, milita- a superior officer, the, the authority that he had over a subordinate. And by the way, the root for this word is order. That's what we are talking about here. We are talking about order. We're talking about function, that's all. And there are many places in the New Testament where people are called to hupatasso, where they are called to submit to older people, To parents, to governing authorities, to leaders in the church, to the law, to Christ, and to God. The issue is not, do we submit? The question is, to whom do we submit? Everybody submits. The word is also here, wives, be subject to. The word is in the middle voice. Very important for a couple of reasons. First, from the husband's perspective. Gentlemen, you need to listen. Nowhere are men told to subject their wives. Nowhere are men told to subordinate their wives. Nowhere are men commanded to make their wives obey any more than wives are commanded to make their husbands love. It is a command. Wives, submit yourselves. Secondly, Paul is telling the wives to submit yourself to your husband. They should not, wives should not seek to assert themselves in the home in a way that is ruling, controlling, and dominating. That is a result of the curse. Rather, this submission is a willful and voluntary act on the part of the wife to come under the authority and headship of her husband. Not servile submissiveness, but willful, loving respect. As is fitting in the Lord means as fits his character. As fits followers of Jesus Christ who find themselves in this role. If you are a follower of Christ, part of the renewal into the image of the Lord is that you will be subject to, you will be submissive to your husbands. Second, Paul addresses husbands. and It's interesting that Paul commands husbands to love their wives, No other household code outside of Scripture commands husbands to love. How then uh, did this seem to get lost until Luther recovered it in 1525? Where did it go? I don't know. Maybe it was hanging out with the gospel. Marriage for love? Husbands, love your wives. It's a present imperative, which means this kind of love should be the consistent affection and behavior of a husband, the consistent behavior and affection of a husband toward his wife. It's interesting to note that he commands love which means that love is to, be, to go beyond being an emotional and physical response. It includes those, but it is also an act of the will. Love is a decision. Love is a commitment. He does not use the word phalao, which speaks of a friendly sisterly love. Hey, we can be pals. He doesn't use the word eros, which speaks of sexual love. We can be lovers. He uses the word agape, which speaks of a self-sacrificing other-focused love. That's the way, husbands, we are to love our wives. Self-sacrificing, others focused. In Ephesians, just to make sure that we understood it clearly, Paul gave us the high and holy example of Christ himself. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul goes on, love them and do not be embittered against them. We all know what that means, don't we? There is perhaps no other relationship that can bring greater heights of joy or deeper lows of bitterness than marriage. Paul actually commands us, husbands, husbands, Do not be bitter against your wives. And the idea of that bitterness there is then, therefore, treat them harshly. Quickly then, we're going to cover the last two very quickly. The responsibility of children to obey their parents. Verse 20, just a few comments. First, the word children here is used to speak of any offspring regardless of age. Kind of interesting. Children, you see, have an ongoing responsibility to their parents no matter how old they get. Now, in the parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul talks about bringing up children in the uh, discipline and instruction of the Lord. So likely he's talking about younger children here in this parallel passage as well. But no matter how old you get, you have a responsibility to your parents. When you are younger, it is your responsibility to honor and obey. When you are older and you've moved out into your own nuclear family, while obedience per se may not be the rule, the command to honor them never ceases. It's interesting to note that to wives, Paul says, be subject to your own husbands, but of children, he says the word simply obey. Obey. That word is stronger than submit. Obey demands obedience. The word is literally hupakuo, which means to listen under. Very simply, it, Paul is saying you need to listen to what your parents say. You need to come under them and do what you are told. Paul even gives the extent in all things. What if I don't want to? What if I don't like it? Doesn't matter in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. It is pleasing to Jesus for children to obey their parents. One other quick note. Notice when Paul, uh, we know that when Paul wrote his letters to the churches, it was his intention that these letters be read publicly to the gathered assembly. And here, he addresses children directly, which means he expected children to be present when the Scripture was read and taught, which is why, while we do have children's programs, we do encourage you to bring your children to what we call Big Church. You may think that your child uh, is not getting much out of our time together, but, but, but we see here an expectation that they gather with us, that as much as possible that they grow from the reading and proclamation of God's Word. And there is something to be said about worshiping together as a family, for children seeing their parents worshiping God. Listen, for children seeing their father submit to the Lord. Out of time, one final point. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. The word exasperate means uh, to make bitter. It means to provoke them to resentment. This is as applicable today as it was then. I shared with you before, but at the time that Paul wrote, the fathers had absolute and sovereign power. It was called the patria potesta, the father's power. Then, as in many homes today, fathers acted as despotic rulers, demanding immediate obedience with no praise or affection." So Paul says to fathers especially, it's interesting he doesn't say parents. He says, fathers, as you lead your homes, remember that you too are being renewed. Put on the character of Christ, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and love toward your children. Lead your children, instruct your children, train your children through those qualities and see what God will do. If you exasperate them with unreasonable demands, no love, no affirmation, devoid of those character qualities of Christ, they will lose heart. What that means is they will become discouraged and give up trying. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet for prayer. That's the worship team. Go ahead and make the way to the front. <coughs> As we are dismissed this morning, I want to encourage you with the truth of Scripture and the truth of history. While the church has gotten off track here and there, they have largely been responsible for the affirmation of the family. The family is the basic building block of society, husbands, wives, and children. So let us be the families that God has called us and enabled us to be by His renewing work through His Spirit. Let's pray.